this morning in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're continuing to follow the ministry of Philip, one of the seven servers. He proclaimed the word of God we saw last week in Samaria, attended, attended with signs and wonders and with much success. And this morning, we see his ministry take a turn, literally a turn, uh, to what he must have thought was an unpromising mission field. So we'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin on page five. Um, The Ethiopian, the word, and the sacrament. The Ethiopian, the word, the sacrament. So first, the Ethiopian. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord directs Philip and says, Rise and go toward the south to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is, Luke tells us, a desert or a deserted place. So at the outset, right, you can imagine Philip's surprise or perhaps his hesitation. Like fresh off a successful campaign of preaching in Samaria, attended by crowds uh, and much joy, capped off by a visit from the apostles and sealed with the gift of the Spirit, now God wants to send him out into the middle of nowhere. Gaza, right, on the Mediterranean Sea, it's about a 60-mile journey south and west of Samaria. And the road to it, Luke says, is, is deserted. It's a desert place. It must have been beguiling. Sometimes God calls us away from successful places. Right? <clears throat> Pastor Vance used to tell me all the time when I was younger, 95% of pastors labor in small churches in rural towns. We just think of the big ones, the, the ones in big cities and the mega churches, we're aware of them. But they don't really represent what God is mostly doing in the world. Right? So sometimes God calls us, you know, think of the logic of this. There's a kind of, um, you know, you're moving from Jerusalem out to Judea, up into Samaria. And you're seeing the prosperity. And then God says, turn around and go back over here. Go back to the desert. Go back to the Gaza Strip. It's a complete, completely counter to the logic of every consultant with their strategic demographic studies as to where the gospel should go next. You can't reach the culture unless you listen to these consultants who tell you you have to do this. Well, whatever that is, it's not this. He gets called to this out-of-the-way, forsaken, and very unappealing place. There's nothing strategic at all about leaving this Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria expansion and going down, going back to Palestine, basically. Right? And so anyway, you know, it's an angel of the Lord communicating this to Philip. But still, part of the beauty of Philip is the text tells us, matter-of-factly, he rose and went. He rose and went. And we're told there was an Ethiopian. What do you know? There was an Ethiopian. And now now Ethiopia is mentioned in the Bible quite a bit, 40-something times, depending on how you count. It's often called Cush. Um, It's the land south of Egypt. And at this time, it probably included parts of present-day Sudan, parts of Eritrea, parts of Ethiopia. So think of what Philip's doing, right? He's preached the gospel 
to the theologically and racially hated Samaritans. And God is now sending him to break down another racial and national boundary with the gospel. The gospel of deep reconciliation is leaping over these traditional boundaries, these deeply entrenched divisions. So, there's an Ethiopian. And he's a eunuch. Now that's important. Luke tells us this guy's a eunuch five times in the passage. So it's not an incidental feature of the man's identity or of the story. And we'll see why. It's very important to follow this, I think. So you have an Ethiopian eunuch. Not only that, we're told he's a court official. He's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Kings in, this, in the ancient world, in this world, often implied eunuchs to do things like oversee harems and other tasks. So it's not at all unusual for a court official to be a eunuch. And these kings, they were considered to be the descendants of the gods. And thus the actual administration of the kingdom was beneath them. So the queen mother would rule the kingdom on behalf of the king, generally speaking. And Candace here, queen of the Ethiopians, we know this now. It's not a personal name. It's a dynastic throne name. It's a title used by Ethiopian queens, right? Much like Caesar, right? We speak of Tiberius Caesar and Nero Caesar. All the emperors are Caesars. All the Ethiopian queen mothers are Candaces. So the eunuch is a court official, and he's in charge, the text says, of all of her treasure. So this eunuch is just is not an ordinary guy in many respects. He's a high-ranking official. This is a man of some note and prestige. You should think of the eunuch as roughly the equivalent of our secretary of the treasury. Right? He's in charge of all the money in Ethiopia. And he came to Jerusalem to worship. This is remarkable when you think about that. One one asks this question. Well, how in the world did he hear about this God, Yahweh, who's being worshipped 500 miles away in Jerusalem? Well, I think we can posit a reasonable, educated guess here, right? The scattered people of God prior to Christ. Right, either through the fleeing of the exile or just by plain migration. Right? The Jews had carried the knowledge of God, the God of Israel, right? this little God in this little strip of land, in, in, you know, in a sea, in an ocean of gods. They had carried the knowledge of the God of Israel as far south as Ethiopia. Now, if you're reading the book of Acts, and I hope you are, it's not terribly surprising because we saw at Pentecost devout Jews from every nation under heaven gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost and included in that list of devout Jews was a whole swath of North Africa gathered for the feast. So we have this Ethiopian, but the religious status of this man is, is just a bit more ambiguous. And this is by design. 
Right? He's sandwiched in Luke's story, in the progress of God's gathering of the nations, right, of the gospel. In Luke's narrative, he's sandwiched between the half-breed Samaritans and Cornelius, who we'll meet in a couple weeks, Lord willing, in chapter 10. Cornelius is considered the first Gentile convert. And to get to Cornelius, you have to get through Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. So this guy, this Ethiopian, whatever we, whatever we make of him, he can't be treated merely as a Gentile. He's probably a convert to the worship of Yahweh. He's attached to Yahweh, to, into the, the God of Israel, to the Israeli cult, perhaps to a local synagogue. He's a proselyte. Now, his status as a eunuch becomes important. Because this means, because he was a eunuch, he couldn't be a full member, if you will, of the covenant community. In one sense, this is a text for everybody who feels they don't quite belong. He couldn't fit in because, listen to what Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 says. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. There it is in the Torah. This man's physical defect would make him an outcast. So notice what Luke is masterfully doing, what the Spirit is doing in this narrative. You're moving from the mongrel Samaritans to this mangled, if you will, Ethiopian. And by doing that, Luke is saying that the promises of the prophets to gather not just Jews, but all 12 tribes of Israel and the outcasts of Israel. Right? We heard that in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah. We'll come back to this. God is gathering the outcasts of Israel from the ends of the earth into the new people of God, into this new temple God's building. Those prophecies, Luke is saying, are coming to fruition in this man. So I'm I'm just going to look at a couple of these texts, these outcast texts. Because again, when God says in the prophets, I'm gathering the outcasts of Israel, he doesn't mean just necessarily the social outcasts. Or people who were cast out. He means people like this man. Right? Who cannot gain full status in the community. So here's Deuteronomy 30. This is in the context of God restoring Israel from exile. He says this. Then the Lord will gather you again. From all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there the Lord will gather you. And we read Isaiah 56. Verse 8 says this, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So in short, as Psalm 147 verse 2 puts it, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. The inclusion of this man at this precise place in the narrative Right? First the Jews in Jerusalem, then the Samaritans, now the excluded Ethiopian eunuchs. The gospel is breaking out, people group by people group, to all the tribes, to all the outcasts, to all the ends of the earth. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So this man, we are told, now think about this. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now don't miss the significance of this. 
he wouldn't be accepted as a full member of the community. It's likely he'd have to worship in the court of the Gentiles. It'd be like you driving, well, it'd be like you going on a chariot, actually, 500 miles to get here and us saying, you can worship, but you have to stand out in the parking lot. He traveled all the way to worship. And certainly worshiping the God of Israel could not have made him very popular in his homeland. Right? You think among the high-ranking officials in Ethiopia, this, worshiping this God of Israel would be a thing that would be a, you know, a career-advancing move for him? Yet he makes this journey, a trip of perhaps approaching about a thousand miles by chariot. But it's too far even for an Ethiopian to run. You have to take a chariot. So that's how important whatever level of participation in public worship that was allowed to him was. Think of that. When we think about the, the, sometimes the struggles and the inconveniences that, and the strife that we have to overcome to get here on Sunday morning. Anyway, he's returning. He had been up there to worship. Now he's coming back. He's in his chariot. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And that brings me to my second point, which is the word. So I think we know a lot about the man. But we know enough. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. So he doesn't just mail it in, this guy. Like he travels 500 miles on the chariot. He goes to worship in Jerusalem, and then on the way back home, he's studying the prophet Isaiah, which is a wonderful avocation. You, know, you can make a whole lifetime of studying Isaiah. It's like he can't get enough. So he, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a convicting person to us, right? He'd probably be appalled at our indifference to the text. He's a pious man. He's devout. And the fact that he has a scroll of Isaiah in his chariot tells us that he's wealthy. But we already knew that. But this confirms that. And the Spirit tells Philip to go over and join the chariot. This is the guy that the Spirit brings Philip to. And the chariot wouldn't be going very fast. And so Philip catches up by running, not in the chariot, the text says, but close enough to the chariot... To hear the guy reading, and this is not unusual because people read aloud in the ancient world. So now Philip not only hears him reading, but he's close enough for a long enough time jogging beside the chariot to figure out, ah, he's reading Isaiah. Can you picture this scene? Like, it would be like somebody running up next to you on your bicycle figuring out what you're listening to on your headphones, and then starting to talk to you about it. We'd probably think this guy's a little off. Maybe dangerous. And you know, this eunuch, he's got people with him for protection. He's not traveling alone. He's a cabinet official. So Philip, like presumably panting a little bit, he asks him with some bold presumption, he says, here's the question. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, this is where you'd expect a wealthy and important figure to say something like, get this guy out of here, <laughs> right, to his security team. 
Do you understand what you're reading? Really? We'd be like, well, of course I understand what I'm reading. What, do you think I had a reading comprehension problem? What is this guy's angle? At least, perhaps that would be my response. I don't know if it would be yours. But, I mean, what I'm struck by here is the remarkable humility of the eunuch. It's remarkable humility. Some strange guy runs up next to your chariot, panting, saying, not, not, not asking, what are you reading? But, do you understand what you're reading? Like, I'm here to help. And he says, how can I? Unless somebody guides me. We're like, no, we're good. We have the Holy Spirit in the Bible. We can read it ourselves. But it's, it's a remarkable statement. Right? We love to see people in this posture, right? How can I? I need someone to help me. The more one knows about Isaiah, the more one realizes we don't know a lot about Isaiah. Right? It seems like the Ethiopian is on that kind of a journey. The journey deep into these texts is not a journey into sufficiency or self-sufficiency. It's a journey into need. It's a journey into weakness. Right? The more we know about anything, the less we know. Or the more we know we don't know. So there's a universe of wisdom and grace in this remark. How can I unless somebody guides me? We have to be guided in Scripture. We need the wisdom of the, his, of the teachers God has raised up. We need the historic community of the church. And there's really no shortcuts to getting this. This, this is a, a certain amount of labor over a lifetime is required. Reading then, now think about this. This is a very non-Western, non-modern way of putting it, right? Reading is not an isolated individual act. Right? That's part of the significance of reading aloud. Generally, it meant you read with other people around. Look, there's nobody who loves books more than me. But I recognize that there's a, as a technological phenomenon, they can reinforce the radical and sometimes um, distorted individualism of modern Western culture. So reading is not an isolated individual act. That kind of reading can be hubris. So Calvin comments on this scene. And he contrasts the Ethiopians' open acknowledgement of his ignorance with people whom he calls, quote, swollen-headed with confidence in their own abilities. He's docile before the text, right? He's not swollen-headed. Scripture bears, he says, this is Calvin, he says, it bears fruit with so few people because scarcely one in a hundred gladly submits himself to teaching. Instead, he says caustically, this is Calvin again, relying on their own penetrating insight, that's sarcasm, they do not deign to hear anybody or read any commentaries. 500 years ago, when there weren't many commentaries, today there's a gazillion commentaries, you can't live enough lifetimes to read all the commentaries today. Back then, there was a smaller amount of commentaries. But Calvin was astonished even then. See, the Reformation put the Bible in everyone's hands, and that's a blessed gift. But Calvin also recognized it's not a gift without a dark underside, which is that you have a lot of individualistic, hyper-self-confident readers who are not really being guided. And so he says, even in his day, the problem was people don't consult the commentaries. 
Now, let's say you decide you want to study the scroll of Isaiah. You want to study the prophet Isaiah. It would be a wonderful thing if you were going to take one book of the Old Testament and make a lifetime avocation of it. This would be on the short list. Here's the second thing you should do after you've made that decision. You should ask this question. What are the best commentaries in the 2,000-year history of the church on Isaiah? And then you start to accumulate a little stack. And what Calvin is astonished is that that people keep reading Isaiah, but they never accumulate the stack. But not so with the Ethiopian. He's quick to ask for aid. He's in a posture of saying, sure, give me some help. And so you've got to wonder why. Why does he think this guy's credible? Just showing up in the middle of Gaza on the deserted road. But obviously God in his providence persuaded him that Philip would be reliable. So what does he do next? He graciously invites Philip to come up and sit with him in the, in the carriage. Right? The Ethiopian chariot, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of his private jet. Chariot one. Right? So then in verse, in verse 32, we're told, now get this, the passage of scripture that he was reading just happens to start like this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. So remarkably, he's reading Isaiah 53. Right? The clearest, most graphic picture of Christ and his suffering in the Old Testament. But the eunuch, he's heard nothing about Jesus. Right? So he asks this, he says, and by the way, this is a, this is a perceptive question. Scholars ask it today. About whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? I mean, this is the key question, right? If you have a Jewish friend, you know this. Who is the servant suffering in Isaiah 53? For all of us, it's pretty obvious who it is. But there were other readings. So, but Philip's going to tell him, look, there's no figure that this text can possibly apply to other than the one who had just suffered in Jerusalem a few years earlier. So if you're Philip, you can't ask for a better starting point for a conversation with a proselyte to Judaism than this. So Philip, what does he do? The text says he opened his mouth. By the way, this is Luke's ingenious echo. He quotes Isaiah 53 a few verses earlier and says, he was like a sheep led before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. But you, Philip... You can open your mouth, and you can open your mouth and preach the good news about the one who didn't open his mouth when this hideous injustice was perpetrated. So with Isaiah 53 alone, you have the suffering servant, you have the atoning sacrifices for sins. And in the immediate context, Isaiah says this, Behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and exalted He will sprinkle many nations. That is, you have the resurrection promise. So think of this. Philip's down there with this guy. There is no written gospel at this time. There's no New Testament. But just from this Old Testament passage, one could speak of the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, the exaltation of the Messiah, and the Messiah sprinkling you and making you just and righteous by his blood. This is why Isaiah has been called for centuries the fifth gospel. You got the four in the New Testament and you have Isaiah. 
And that's just what Philip does. He imitates Jesus. We heard this in the gospel lesson. Right? He imitates Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he showed them that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of him. But by the way, the two stories are designed. It's the same author, right? The gospel of Luke, that was our gospel lesson, and Acts, they're written by the same guy. And the two stories are architected so that if you read the one, you should think of the other. Right? On the road to Emmaus, a strange guy comes up to a couple of disciples in a deserted place, shares the Bible with them, right? And then they, have, they partake of the sacrament together. That's what happens here in Acts chapter 8. The two stories resonate and evoke one another. Right? And Jesus told his disciples, the whole Old Testament is about me. All of Moses, all the prophets, all the Psalms. So Philip then is able to start where the man is. Right? In Isaiah 53 and show him this. And we should equip ourselves to do this. Right? We ought to ask ourselves, can because this is an easy one, right? I mean, if you're talking about starting where people are in our culture, they're not anywhere near being a pious proselyte to the God of Israel like the Ethiopian eunuch was pouring over the text of Isaiah 53, right? Our friends and neighbors are far away from that. So it's always good to ask yourself a question. Can I start where this person is and get to the gospel without, you know, without it being formulaic or manipulative or anything like that, right? And Philip... At least, at least you have to do this, right? You have to be able to walk before you can run. You have to be able to get from Isaiah 53 to Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation, and gift of forgiveness. Right? We can start with anything. Right? Cornelius Van Til was a professor at Westminster and Philly. He used to say, we can start with the Phillies game last night. You know, Since God, the triune God, is, is, the, is the one who lights up all of reality for us, we can start with any fact. If a person's open, we can have a conversation about reality. But we ought to be able, at least at a minimum, to start with Isaiah. Right? And then be enough of a student to see Christ in the Old Testament story. So from the Old Testament text, read by a carefully gifted teacher, Philip is the instrument to convert the Ethiopian eunuch. That's the power of the word. Right? It is the power of God unto salvation. So finally then, finally the sacrament. They come upon some water, and the eunuch says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, this guy has already undergone probably a proselyte baptism as a convert to, to Judaism. But you know what this means? This means that Philip also explained to him, as Peter did at Pentecost, the need for baptism. Once one repents and believes that Jesus is the Christ, one is to be baptized. Now, we don't have time for it here, but baptism has these deep back, its deep background in the waters of creation, of Noah's flood, of the Red Sea exodus, of crossing the Jordan, of Jesus' own baptism. And it's likely that Philip did some of that work with him to explain to him the importance and the significance of baptism. But in any event, just see this conjunction. The word is embraced, and the sacrament baptism is sought immediately to seal the word. Right? The gospel saves Baptism seals and affirms. Again, the eunuch shows exemplary piety to us. I mean, he could have waited till he got home, had some friends together, maybe had some food, you know, had a baptismal uh, service. But he gets baptized at the very first opportunity in the middle of nowhere. Right? And that, too, he's an example. Do you believe the gospel? Then get baptized. Don't wait. <laughs> 
Don't wait. Right? Ideal conditions rarely prevail. So the Ethiopian, now think of the story. The Ethiopian went to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship. And here's, there's a polemic in this story. It's under the surface, but the story's polemical, like most of Acts has been to this point, meaning it's criticizing the existing Jewish order. He went to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple to worship, but he found the Messiah, and he found the salvation away from Jerusalem and away from the temple, on a deserted road back home, which, of course, has been happening since Pentecost, right? The man in Acts 3, the layman, he's healed outside the temple. People are offered forgiveness of sins apart from the temple sacrificial rituals. People are granted salvation and the gift of the Spirit away from the temple because God is forming an eschatological, eternal everlasting temple, as promised in the prophets. So Philip baptizes him. Philip is carried away, and the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. The gospel is a story of trying to diffuse joy into the world. And he took this joy, where we can be sure, back to the highest precincts of Ethiopian power. There's an early tradition that this man started a church upon his arrival home. Now, we don't know that for sure, but what we do know is that by 320, Ethiopia was a Christian nation. Right? And it was one of the, now it's one of the oldest Christian nations in the world. And you see the seed of that story right here. So, I'm going to conclude by, I want us to see two things that are welded together in the text. Right? This is not an arbitrary or lone conversion. We already spoke of the fact that it's a signal of God's gathering, not just Jews, not just Israelites, but the outcasts of Israel into the restored Israel of God. We saw that from Isaiah 56, which, by the way, is in the same section of the scroll that the guy was reading. So, you know, he's in Isaiah, he's in the 50s, probably because he's a eunuch, and he knows that eunuchs are addressed in chapter 56. But in that same passage, right, a particular type of outcast is mentioned. Isaiah 56 mentions outcasts, but at the end of our Old Testament lesson, we heard this. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument, a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Excluded from the temple. Excluded from the assembly, the eunuchs are now given a privileged place in the house of God. That's the first thing to see here. Now, you may think, I'm not a eunuch. But we all know what it means to be spiritually disfigured, right? To be disqualified or to be defiled or to feel marginalized or to be cast out, right? God is gathering all the marginalized fringe people back into his house. That's the first thing to see in this text. Right? Jesus didn't come for all the pretty people. He came for those who are not. Right? Not many are high-born and wealthy and all that. Right? He says, I came for the things that are not to shame the things that are. <laughs> Secondly, this is the very cusp now of the nations being gathered to the restored Israel of God. Listen to Psalm 68. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush, that's Ethiopia, shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. That's what this is, right? This is the beginning of Cush stretching out her hands to worship the God of Israel in Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah 11. Same scroll, same book. Isaiah 11, a little earlier, maybe on a different scroll. Right? He speaks of the Messiah having a day of international range such that the root of Jesse stands as a signal to the peoples. Here's what he says. This is Isaiah 11. You read this every Christmas. Well, you read, you read up to this every Christmas. You have to read it just a little further to get to this in Isaiah 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush. The Lord is extending his hand to recover the remnant that remains of his people from the ends of the earth. Gathering the nations and gathering the scattered Israelites bleed into one another here. So this is the beauty of the gospel. One last time. It leaps over the temple boundaries. It leaps over racial boundaries. It leaps over historical boundaries. It leaps over Torah regulations to create a new Catholic international temple of which you are a living stone. Right? As Isaiah 56 puts it of this temple, it is the house which shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Glory be to God and to the suffering and now exalted Jesus who is the head of this international people of God. Amen. Amen.